Well, good morning. You can uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. You uh, are aware, I've just announced it and reminded you, we've uh, begun a study of Galatians in the midweek groups on our Wednesday and Thursday uh, groups. Uh, This week, we embarked on chapter one, just looking at the first uh, 10 verses. Um, And whenever we come together on Wednesdays and Thursdays, it's a sweet time, it's a great time of fellowship, but I am reminded that the, the group that comes to those, that, that's able to come to those, it, it makes up a very small percentage of our, 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 our body. And so I thought it would be a good thing to do today is to sort of give us a glimpse of Galatians. It's the pure doctrine of the gospel. Uh, a few months ago, we did a walk through Philippians. You might remember that. And I went through virtually the whole book of Philippians. This is not that. This is a glimpse of Galatians. We're just going to really scrape the surface. I want to just sort of focus on the overall theme of what is happening in the book of Galatians. Uh, On Wednesdays and Thursdays, there's just simply not enough time to give a very large introduction unless we devote a whole uh, evening to just that. And so I wanted to give us um, just a taste of what's going on um, with this wonderful epistle by, by Paul. Paul has written this letter to be distributed among many churches, all the churches that he had established in uh, the Roman uh, province of Galatia. And he has done this because something pretty drastic has taken place. These are churches that he established on his first, second missionary journeys. Um, These are believers. These are people he has grown to love and to care for. And they have begun to turn away from the very gospel that brought them together as a church to begin with, that made them the actual church. And he is astounded that they are doing it and doing it so uh, quickly. He is um, defending the pure doctrine of the gospel. And I want to draw your attention to just a few verses this morning at the beginning of Galatians in chapter 1 so you can get a flavor for what he writes here. I also want to remind you, too, as you, if you've ever read through the book of Galatians or read Paul's epistles, let's just start with that. He generally begins with some sort of welcome, some sort of greeting, and then some sort of maybe um, uh, love uh, sentiment to them of some kind. Uh, this letter is absent of all that. Because the, uh, the mission he has is a very important one, and he wants to get to the task of defending the gospel. So he bypasses all of that, and he goes, and starting in verse 6, this is what he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. What has happened is false teachers have come into these churches that Paul has started And have told those believers that they needed more. That there, yeah, uh, Christ had died for sins and grace comes to us through Christ, but that grace must be earned. The grace is available to you, but what have you done to get it? And they are calling the people to go back to works. 
particularly Jewish works, they're convinced that grace still comes through the Jewish rituals and ceremonies, observances of Sabbaths and feasts and festivals, and particularly circumcision. And Paul is astounded. He is absolutely shocked that they are turning away from the gospel of grace and just grace, grace without works. And he tells them this. He says, you're turning away to a different gospel, which is not another gospel. In fact, the word different and the word another are both another in the Greek. But the word different means another of a different kind. And the word another means another of the same kind. So he's saying you're turning to uh, another gospel, to another of a completely different kind, which isn't of the same kind. It's a completely different gospel. He said that's because people have come in and they have perverted it. They have twisted it. And so they're in danger of turning completely away from the gospel of grace. And they've also accused Paul. They've attacked his uh, authority. They've attacked the gospel that Paul is preaching. They have uh, accused him of being a people pleaser because he has stripped away the works to make it easy for the Gentiles to believe, right? You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to observe Jewish festivals and feasts. You can just believe. And so they're saying, oh, you're just doing this because you're a people pleaser. And so prove them wrong. Paul comes out the gate and and accurses people twice, (laughs) pronounces a double curse. And then in verse 10, he says, so do I now persuade men or God, right? Am I a people pleaser? Would a people pleaser get up and curse anyone who believes a different gospel? And boy, we are surrounded by people pleasers today. The gospel has been perverted. And there are few who would be bold enough to stand up and pronounce a curse on any other gospel. But we're called to do that. It's not tolerant today. It's certainly not popular for someone to get up and say, well, there is only one way. But it's actually more than that. There is only one God. There is only one inspired word of God. That is the Bible, only one holy book. There is only one way to salvation, only one Savior, and that is Christ. And that's not a popular thing to say. Paul goes even further, and he says that anyone that would preach anything different, that they are cursed. The word cursed means devoted to destruction. So certainly this is a... uh, a powerful letter. Paul's defense of the gospel comes at us with force. And they're saying, well, it's just another message. It's just another gospel. And that gospel doesn't save. People will say that today. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I think I have it for you here. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you stand, by which also you are saved. Anyone says to you today that the gospel of Christ doesn't actually save, uh, they're wrong. You stand in the gospel of Christ and you are saved by the gospel of Christ. But this idea of of making our own uh, sort of way to God has been around forever, isn't it? In fact, I want to just take us back a bit to the earliest book of the Bible ever written to show you sort of where we can see this even beginning back in the life of Job. So if you turn to the Old Testament to the book of Job, 
It's right before Psalms and Proverbs. So if you get to the middle and see those books, you'd want to go right before that to chapter 9. To chapter 9. And in it, I want to point something out. Job is going to ask the question that every religion on the face of the planet attempts to answer. He is going to ask a question that even today, all religions try to answer. And it's in verse 2. Look what he says. Job chapter 9, verse 2. Truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? That's the question, right? That's the question man has been asking. That's why the religions have been made. How can I be right with God? And every religion tries to answer it by some different way, some different method. And what's striking about this is this is coming from the lips of Job. Why is that striking? Turn to the beginning of the letter of Job in chapter 1. It's striking because I want you to see what Scripture says about the man Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. (laughs) This is a good man. By all worldly standards, Job is as good as it gets. He's blameless. He's upright. He even fears God. He shuns evil. So why, can I ask you, in chapter 9, is he asking that question? How can a man be righteous before God? Here's a man, by all intents and purposes, is as righteous as man can be, right? If someone were to say those things to you today, wouldn't you say, well, that you got to be righteous, all right? I mean, I'm a good person. That's Job. Well, by the time we get to chapter 9, this man has lost everything. Everything, right? He's lost his sheep, his donkeys, his camels, his servants. So those are all his his worldly possessions. He's lost his sons and daughters. And now his attack has been, been, uh, his health has been attacked. He is sick and he is in despair and he's confused. If you turn to Job chapter 7, I just want to show you how confused he is. Because here's a man who considered himself right with God. I'm, I'm blameless. I'm upright. I fear God. I shun evil. And yet, he's absolutely confused. Look at Job chapter 7 verse 3. I have been allotted months of futility. And wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? And the night be ended. He just wants it to be done. For I have I had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh, flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. This is a man who's in despair. Skip down to verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. What am I? Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me when I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint? Then you scare me with dreams 
and terrify me with visions so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone for my days are but a breath. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long? Will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? And here's his question. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be This is a confused man. This is a desperate man. He just wants it to be done. God, I don't understand. What's wrong? Did I sin? And if I've sinned, why don't you just forgive me? What is going on? And then one of Job's useless friends comes along. (laughs) These guys are great. Bildad the Shuhite in chapter 8. I always make this joke, but this is the shortest guy in the Bible. Bildad the Shuhite. Okay. <laughs> so, but I want you to pay, pay very close attention to Bildad's explanation of what's going on with Job. Look at verse 2 of chapter 8. How long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind, right? He's getting on Job's nerves here. Like, like my nerve, Job, you're, you're driving me crazy with all your words. How long are you going to do this? Verse 3, does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Here's his answer. Well, it's clear. Your sons have probably sinned, and he's killed them for it. Wow. Thanks, Bildad. But verse 5, if you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, and here's the answer, and here's the answer every religion gives to Job's question, how can a man be righteous before God? Here's the answer. If you were pure... And upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. There's the answer. Every religion says the same thing. You just have to be better. You just have to be a better person. You have to be good. You have to be pure and you have to be upright. Clearly, clearly, you're not pure enough. You're not upright enough. And so you need more. This is not helpful to Job. And this is the theme we see through Scripture. Scripture answers this question constantly. That is true. Right. I am not pure. I am not upright, but I can never be. In Psalm 130, verse 3, the psalmist says it this way. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I sin, and if you, you check that out, God, I can't stand before you because I'm a sinner. David writes in Psalm 143, verse 2, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. If you were to judge me, God, you would see that I'm not righteous. I'm not upright. I'm not pure. Isaiah 64, verses 6 to 7 He says this, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind 
have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Scripture makes it clear that we can't stand before a holy and righteous God. And Bildad's answer, while true, you, you need to be pure and upright, is wrong in the fact that, well, Job, figure that out. Obviously, you're not pure. Be purer. <laughs> you're not upright. You need to be more upright. How do you do that? And that's what the religions of the world try to answer. If you're a Roman Catholic, you can hopefully um, make some withdrawals from the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit is the merits of Christ and what he has done on the cross. But what's added to that are the merits of the saints. And if, if, if those who have died with maybe more merit than they needed, there's a, a, you know, extra merit is sort of taken off and put into the treasury of merit. Where that box is, I don't know. It could be a tube. I don't, but it's a treasury. And the Pope has access to that a treasury. And so maybe, you know, Job... If you were more upright, you should visit the Pope and, 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 and ask for a withdrawal from the treasury if you wanted to apply that to today. That's true. I'm not making this up. This is true. And so to maybe withdraw and earn some more merit, you know, go and pray over the bones of, of Peter, supposedly, or drink milk from the breast of Mary, or, you know, pray to these relics and do these sacraments and these things, and you can get some more merit because you just aren't good enough. This is the year 2017, 500 years ago this year, an Augustinian monk and priest nailed to the Roman Catholic door 95 indictments against the church, 95 theses, right? Indictments against the sacraments and the practices of the Roman Catholic church that they had put this burden upon the people to earn salvation. This was none other than Martin Luther. And when he did that, he sparked the Protestant Reformation. But before Luther got to that point, before that, he was, he was a monk. And uh, Luther was tormented. He desperately wanted to be right with God, sort of crying out like Job. And everything everyone showed him only further tormented him. He starved himself. He froze himself. He purposely wore uncomfortable clothing and shoes. He would fast on just bread and water for months at a time so that his friends thought he would die. He even was convinced by the Catholic Church to go and beg, even though he didn't need to beg, because to beg was a humiliating thing, and that would, of course, earn you merit. And he got so desperate trying to be right with God, he got to the point where he was angry with God. He hated God. He didn't want to have anything to do with God because he couldn't find a way to be right with him until one thing set him free. It was when he was studying the book of Galatians. Why is this book important today? As Protestant believers today, we stand today in our beliefs because of, because of what happened in the life of Luther, because of what Paul wrote in the book of Galatians. And what it was, was Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. These words stuck out to him and they rang true, and they launched his understanding of the gospel for the first time. They brought him understanding. 
And it's just these simple words. Verse 11 of chapter 3. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. Luther knew that well. For the just or the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That's what turned it for him. Of course, that statement comes from Habakkuk 2.4. When we were doing the minor prophet study this summer, we came across that and talked about that a bit. It's referred to by Paul in Romans 1.17 and again in Hebrews 10.38. But this was the turning point and unlocked for Luther the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so Luther called the gospel, or the book of Galatians, the pure doctrine of the gospel. That title was not my own. That's, that's Luther's title for the book of Galatians. Now he further says this about the Galatians. He says this, it's the most profound, condensed, and powerful argument ever expressed in writing. The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. <laughs> I mean, it meant a lot to him. He was one with it. It set him free. For the first time, all his years of torment and bondage only further tormented him, only further um, put him in bondage, until finally the true gospel, the pure gospel, set him free. And he found something that didn't come from man. He had tried man's way, and it never worked. And I'm going to tell you today, man's way won't work. It will never work. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That is the truth of all the religions of the world. They are the ways of man. And scripture compares man's way with God's way all through scripture. And I want to give us two illustrations today. Man's way versus God's way. And the first one comes from Genesis chapter four. I know we're hopping around a bit, but go back to Genesis chapter four. You'll be very familiar with this story. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 4. This is shortly after the fall of man, the temptation of Eve. They've been cast out of the Garden of Eden. Sin has entered the world. The, the, The world has been cursed because of that by God. And now we have some offspring coming into the world through Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, But he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Here we have an example of, I believe, the first false religion. The first attempt to do things man's way instead of God's way. Here we have two men. Each of them bring an offering to the Lord. Cain brought the work of his hands. The work of his hands. And the offering was rejected. Abel brought a sacrifice. 
and the offering was accepted. Cain's way was the way of human works. That is the first false religion. God makes clear the way, yet we choose our own way. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, lends some light to the situation here. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. The truth of why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was not speaks to us today, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And what was it? Well, his was excellent. He was considered righteous. Why? Because he did things the way God called him to do. Cain was outwardly religious. He brought this outward uh, uh, offering, but he was disobedient to the way that God had called him to do it. His offering didn't evidence authentic faith, but Abel's did. Why? Well, because he did it his way, not God's way. And what is God's way? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 helps us with that. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So Abel's sacrifice required blood, the remission of sins. And it, it, it recognized his sinful standing before, before God. Cain's did not. And what's wrong with that? I mean, that's what people would ask today. Really, what's wrong with that? Wasn't Cain sincere, right? Didn't he want to uh, obey God? Uh, maybe, maybe he was just, uh, it was a misunderstanding. Maybe he didn't quite get all the instructions right. I mean, I've heard all of those things, but look at what 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says. Not as, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. In that passage, in the context, he's talking about uh, the love of believers versus the, the love of unbelievers. And he says, we're not to be like Cain because he was of the wicked one and he murdered his brother. And why did he do that? Because his works were evil. It wasn't just a misunderstanding. It wasn't just, well, you know, he still was sincere. Scripture says, no, his works were evil. They were against God. Why? Why is it that? Wait, I just don't understand. Well, it goes on. He says, he was of the wicked one. It even goes further. That's a little bit more desperate here. He was of the wicked one. Who is the wicked one? The devil. The devil. How in the world is Cain of the devil? Well, to answer that, we go to the words of Jesus. John chapter 8. Speaking to the Pharisees, this is what he says to them. These outwardly religious men, these very sincere and devout men, he says these words. You are of your father, the devil. <laughs> and the desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. This is false religion. Jesus doesn't mince words. He says it plain and clear. Yeah, I don't care about the sincerity. I don't care about all those things. It's outward religiosity. You're actually of your father, the devil. And the two things that mark that, he says these things. You stand not in the truth. They're not doing those things according to truth, according to God's way. 
and they're relying on their own resources. That's false religion. Doesn't come from God's word and his instruction and relies on man's resources and not God's. That's the very, that's the very definition of it. To give another example, turn to Luke chapter 18. We'll go to a parable of Jesus himself. What does Jesus say about this? What does Jesus say about man's way versus God's way? How important is it really? Well, this is from Jesus' own mouth. He gives us another example of, again, two men. Look at verse 9 of chapter 18. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So just off the beginning here, we understand he's got a message to people who trust in themselves, who think they are righteous. To them, Jesus speaks this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Two men go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, he just, he's resting entirely upon his works, right? He's listing them off. And he leaves not justified by God. The tax collector is deeply conscious of his sin. He's beating upon his breast. He recognized that as a sinner, his only hope was not in his own works, but in the work of another. His prayer indicates here faith and trust in that other, and because of that, he went away justified. All other religions are of their father, the devil, because they do not stand in the truth, the truth of God's word. They come from man, not from God, and they rely upon man's resources rather than God's. If someone is to listen to this recording this week, I could be in big trouble for saying those words. That's the truth. That's what Galatians preaches. Paul doesn't mince words. Jesus doesn't mince words. We must stand boldly for the gospel. And turning back to, to Galatians, I want you to look at verses 11 to 12 because here we see what Paul is getting at. <clears throat> This is not his own words. Paul has not made this up. He's not a people pleaser. He has not made it easy for Gentiles to believe. Look what he says in chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not an accident that that's there. Paul understands scripture. He understands false religion. He understands that all of those things come from man. And he's very clear to say, listen, this doesn't come from man. No one taught it to me. No one. But this comes uh, as a revelation. This gospel is not a religion. It's a revelation. 
It's not something that begins with man and, and endeavors to reach to God. It begins in the heart of God and reaches down to sinful man. That is the gospel. That's the gospel from God. And that's the gospel that Paul is desperately trying to protect in this letter. The gospel from God. You know, Scripture refers to it as such constantly. The, the, the gospel of Mark refers to it as the gospel of Jesus Christ in, in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul refers to it uh, here as such in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and 15, 16. Both times he calls it the gospel of God. Peter calls it the gospel of God in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Very clear to say, listen, this is God's gospel. Someone might say, well, hold on, I've heard, I've heard Paul say uh, my gospel. Several times he says, listen to my gospel. There's a difference there. Paul is giving credit to the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel has been revealed to him from Christ. But as he enters all these other false gospels, he's saying, listen to my gospel. It's different than these, but he gives credit to Jesus. It's Jesus's gospel. It comes from the heart of God Almighty. It does not come from the heart of man. So what then is the true doctrine of the gospel? What then? Huh? If not all these other things, then what is it? Very simple. I'll just take you through a very small handful of some very well-known verses. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus did not enter the world to uh, condemn it. Reason is it was already condemned. The, un, uh, the wrath of God is being poured out upon the unrighteousness of men, Paul tells us in Romans. It's already condemned. Jesus doesn't come in to condemn it. It is condemned. He comes to save it. And why does he come to save it? Because God loves you. He loves the world. And so he sends him to be the savior of the world. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says something very important here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I would be ashamed of these false gospels because inwardly I would know that they're a sham. Inwardly I would know that they merely hang upon a thin thread of man's works. Hopefully, if you do enough of this, you'll get there. Hope it works out for you. It's a sham. And I, I would be very ashamed of that. But Paul can stand before you today and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not. Why? Because it's the power of God. It's not man's power. It's not your work's power. It's not your merit. It's God's power. And that power leads to salvation for everyone who believes. Boy, that's freeing. It's for everyone. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I read you the first couple of verses earlier, but we'll, we'll hit these again. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried 
and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul very, very plainly uh, lays it out there, doesn't he? This is, this is the gospel. You want to know what it is? This is the gospel. Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures, right? So read the scriptures. What does the scripture say about that? You get all the details in the scriptures. This is how he died. This is the circumstances of it. This is why he did it. All those things. But the fact is, the matter, he died for your sins. And then he was buried. And then he rose again, defeating death according to the scriptures. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And Paul gives us sort of the theme verse of Galatians in chapter 5. What has this gospel done? This is it. If you want to kind of just nutshell what all of the book of Galatians is about, it's in chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Boy, the religions of the world today seek to further put people in bondage. Just keep trying harder, and I just feel more helpless. It just do more and feel more worthless. It can't be done. And he tells them, listen, you need to stand fast because you have been set free. And don't go back to a yoke of bondage. And over and over again, this word bondage, and I pointed this out on our Thursday group, is, is a theme uh, through here. Paul desperately does not want people to go back into bondage. You see it in, in chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 4. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may bring us into bondage. That's what they've done. It's not just that they're bringing a false gospel uh, another way. What's the end result? Enslavement, bondage. We see it all through here. We see it in chapter 4, uh, verse 3 and, and verse 9. We see it in verse 24 and 25 and uh, chapter 5, verse 1 that we've read. He desperately does not want people to slip back into bondage. Christ has made us free. The simple call that Jesus gives us is found in Matthew chapter 11. Probably some of my favorite verses. Verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come, and this is what he tells you today, who sit in this room. Maybe you are among those who have labored desperately, who've desperately been trying to figure out, how do I be right with God? How can a righteous man make it to God? How can you be righteous? And he says, just come to me. You've been laboring. You've been heavily laden. You're carrying a burden you're not meant to carry. You can't carry it. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. And that's where we find rest. It's through Jesus. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness that we need, how can a man be righteous before God? It's the righteousness of Christ. It's given to us through the cross. God made him who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin so that we might become his righteousness. So God looks down upon the cross and he sees his son and then he looks upon 
um, or he sees the sin, he looks upon me and sees his son. It's his son's righteousness, not my own. My righteousness is filthy, like filthy rags, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says this, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we, have, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is Jesus alone that can forgive you for your sins. And it is that simple. The gospel of grace is simple. It's not grace plus something. In our Protestant evangelical circles, we still might be wanting to add something to it. It's very hard to take something for free, isn't it? We still might want to say, well, yeah, grace, but then baptism. Oh, yeah, but grace, but then, you know, the Lord's Supper. Uh, but, but grace, yeah, but then, you know, a regular attendance in church. Listen. Listen to me really clearly here. You add any work to grace, it's no longer grace. You have tried to merit God's grace. And that's the very opposite of what grace is. It's undeserved favor. It can't be merited. It can't be earned. We simply must come to Christ in faith. Today, I decided to hold off communion to the end because, well, of that message. (laughs) Because it's a gospel message and we have been set free as believers in Christ. We have been invited to partake of the Lord's Supper, communion with him, which is an amazing thing. And in Hebrews chapter 9, I just want to read a few verses for you. Verses 24 to 28 says this, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, man's way, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, But after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await him. He will appear a second time apart from sin and for salvation. Mm. The passage tells us that two things are certain. And yes, death is one of them. The other is not taxes. The other is judgment. That is certain. Death is certain and just as certain as death is judgment. And mankind has proven himself unable to live up to the standards of the first covenant, the original covenant with man, to live up to the standards of the Ten Commandments. And so man is destined to to judgment. That's why. But Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Hebrews 8, 6 tells us it's a better covenant. And Jesus himself calls it the new covenant in Matthew 26. He says this, then he took the cup, And he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And that word remission is so important. Guess what it means? Release from bondage. Bondage. 
You don't need to be in bondage. You're free. The new covenant frees us. Hebrews chapter 10 describes it this way. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. There's no longer a need for us to make an offering, a sacrifice. Our sin is paid by the blood of Jesus. All we have to do is accept it. If you've accepted God's gracious gift today, praise the Lord. (laughs) He invites you today to partake of communion with him because you have peace with God. If you've not yet given your life to him and accepted his gift of salvation, I invite you to do it today. Today is the day of salvation. We're going to meditate on these truths, the truth of the fact that Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We receive remission of sins. We're free from bondage. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to pass out the bread and the cup as we meditate on these amazing truths. I ask that you just hang on to those elements until, uh, until we all have them. At the end, we'll eat and we'll drink together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God in heaven, we do praise your name. We bless your name. And Lord, we want you to come. And we're grateful that we can stand before you in such a way and say, come. Because our sins have been forgiven. We've been made clean by your blood. And we're no longer enemies. We no longer live in fear and dread of judgment. We want you to come. Lord, what a joy, what a, what a gracious God you are. You've given us a true and lasting hope, the anchor of our souls. Mm. And God, I pray today that we just be encouraged and strengthened in our hope. Encouraged that your gospel is the one true gospel. It is the one way to be right with you because it originates in your heart and in your love for us. God, may we be bold to share our faith with those around us, to declare the truth of your gospel that there is no other way. And to do that without fear. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing another song.